I was hard pressed to name it. It was an underlying syndrome of sorts that permeates my very being. It operates like a drone, a dull droning sound, always present, that most of the time is drowned out by my higher pitches of optimism and hope. I now know it to be black fatigue. This is the Inclusion Solution Live, the Winters Group podcast for all things diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. My name is Mary Frances Winters, and I will be your host for this series where we will explore the many layers of Black fatigue. Dr. Shannon Sullivan, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about um, Black fatigue. So as you know, we're doing a series of uh, uh, sessions with people who have something to say about the concepts that I write about um, in my book. And I started writing this book as a result of hearing from so many millennials, actually, that um, they were really just tired of having to tell white people or share with white people or teach white people what it's like to live um, as a black person. And I thought as a baby, I'm a baby boomer. So I thought as for me, I said, well, isn't that what I'm supposed to do? Am I supposed to help people understand? But I was hearing something different. I kept hearing, I am just fatigued. And so we're going to talk about um, how your work intersects perhaps with some of the work that, that I'm doing. But why don't you just tell our listeners right now just a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you came into the work that you do. Sure. So uh, thank you again for um, having this conversation with me. I'm Shannon Sullivan, and I'm a professor of philosophy and health psychology at UNC Charlotte. Uh, and I work primarily in critical philosophy of race, feminist philosophy, and critical whiteness studies. And um, I, I, I came into this work uh, that increasingly focuses on, on whiteness and white privilege and related concepts um, I almost want to say sort of accidentally, a lot of it came through teaching, trying to help my students understand material that um, was, of course, intellectually challenging, but could also be personally challenging. And so when I was talking to students, um, sometimes about feminist concepts, I would see male students in the back of the room looking pretty uncomfortable and pretty unhappy. And, um, and I was trying to think, how can I reach out to them in a way to help them hear this material and get past some of the some of the barriers and hostility is not quite the word, but just barriers. It was difficult material. And I started asking myself, well, what would I feel like as a white person if we were talking about race? And I had this aha moment of realizing no one's ever talked to me about that. I've never really thought about that. Not, and not that there's, um, not that those are parallel. There's all sorts of interesting intersections there, but it was a moment of realizing I've got, to, I've got to think a whole lot more philosophically and otherwise about what whiteness is and how it's structuring my relationship to other people, scholarly enterprises, you know, all sorts of things. And so that kind of led down an ongoing path of, of exploring critically what, what whiteness is and maybe most importantly, how to transform it. Great. Thank you. So you wrote um, a book, in, I think it was 2014, right? That was called um, was Good White People. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. so tell, tell me, how, how did you get there and, and tell me about the thesis around that book? So I'd been interested in writing for a while around what I call unconscious habits of race, unconscious habits of, of whiteness and white privilege and white domination and white supremacy. 
And as a follow-up to that, because I think a lot of this nowadays um, does operate unconsciously, but it, that makes it no less insidious um, as a result. Um, and I began to um, explore the ways in which uh, I think that what I call good white people are a major obstacle for progress toward racial justice. Um, and that a sort of class division gets going uh, or gets established between the so-called good white people who supposedly aren't responsible for racism, they're enlightened or something, kind of post-Jim Crow. And then there's supposedly the bad white people that are the problem. If there's any lingering racism, mm -hmm. any it's that small group of the really explicit, big-booted white supremacists that are the problem. And a nice, very psychologically comfortable, sharp line supposedly exists between the two. And it's a way of absolving so-called regular good white people from any kind of responsibility or, in, or um, connection or implication in ongoing racial injustice. And so I wrote a lot about the habits of good white people. And it, it's not pretty. <laughs> there are a lot of ways I think that white people um, dump responsibility for racism onto other people and just try to morally absolve themselves of it. So what are some of those habits? Of good uh, uh, one is, as I've alluded to, um, dumping problems of racism on the so-called bad white people. Okay. Okay. So another one is um, really demonizing um, parts of history. So you look back at white slaveholders or uh, back when the um, back when lynching uh, activities from the Klan and others were at a high point, say at the end of the 19th century or early centuries of the early part of the 20th century, you look back and demonize and say, how could white people have been like, isn't it so great we're not like that anymore? It was so awful back then. And it's a way of really, it's not a way of reckoning with one's, one's history. It's a way of demonizing it to morally absolve the present as if it's innocent. It's like a quest for white innocence. Um, I think another form it takes is in um, very interested in white child rearing, which freaks people out when you say that, how white people rear children who are white. And um, most, most of the times the good white people do it through color, so-called color blindness. And this becomes a way to allow uh, racism and anti-black racism in particular to just hum along unnoticed and replicate itself. But all of it looking very innocent, very, um, you know, morally um, responsible and good. I, I know, I remember um, being in a store a number of years ago and a little kid says to, to mother, mommy, mommy, there's a brown person talking about me. And I said, shh, shh, don't say that, don't say that. Right? <laughs> and so sometimes, you know, I, I would say something like, oh, gee, you know, how precocious. <laughs> she knows her colors really well. <laughs> yeah. right, we're supposed to deny it or not see it. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it was just, oh, you know, you, you, you've, uh, uh, you know, the innocence of a child, right? Just, uh, mm -hmm. Innocence, silence, lots of silence, lots of lots of shushing, children's questions, right. um, as and uh, and and some of it, I, I get it. I'm a white person. There's some awkwardness. White people don't have a lot of experience. Most white people, I would say, mm -hmm. don't have a lot of experience with family members and friends talking in kind of thoughtful or critical or rich ways about race and their own whiteness. So if you talk about race, and especially if you talk about whiteness, the fear is 
everyone's going to turn around and think you're a clan member. Like you're about to pull the white hood out of your purse and put it on right there in the grocery store or something. And so the safest way to make it everyone, you know, it's like signaling, Hey, it's okay. I'm not one of those bad ones. You shush them, you silence it. You don't say a word about it. And it just allows everything else to replicate and keep, keep going. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about, um, you know, Robin DeAngelo's really popular book about white, white fragility. And it's, it's actually, that was one of the, um, that was one of the um, reasons that I wanted to write Black Fatigue. So I said, yeah, if there's white fragility, there's certainly Black Fatigue. But as I've been thinking more and more about this concept of white fragility, I, I and this, this has come to me like over the past, like maybe past month, I'm saying, I don't know. I'm saying, you know, white people seem to me like they're more entitled than they are fragile. So when I we do a lot of work with corporations and the corporate people tell us, um, you know, you can't say that because we don't want to make our leaders feel uncomfortable. And so, you know, that, that's really just so uncomfortable. And even the leaders will say, you know, as a result of what's just happened over the past few months, you know, this, that George Floyd incident sparked, you know, the, the momentum for uh, renewed interest in racial justice. And CEOs of large corporations say, oh, you know, it's just so uncomfortable for me to, to talk about uh, racism. I don't know if that's uh, fragility more so than it is, you know, I'm entitled. I don't have to, I don't, I don't have to talk about it. So when I think of, I wrote uh, in my blog last week about who's really fragile, I was thinking about, I was thinking about the, the oh, black and brown kids. I was thinking about these mm-hmm. who uh, from a very early age uh, are told, and I know the first time I knew that I was different or that my color mattered. I was in kindergarten and I'm mm. sometimes I've been in kindergarten but I remember that incident so well I remember who it was I remember his name I remember what he and because from that moment it transformed me from this little kid who was just carefree and you know to this like what like somebody might not like me because of my skin and think about a five-year-old like trying to like reason that I'm trying to mm-hmm. out so I, you know, I became, you know, more, more like this. So, so this notion of white fragility, I'm like wondering, well, who's really fragile in all of this? <laughs> you know. So anyway, I just want to get, get your thoughts on that. I think you're right that um, <laughs> that white fragility helps. It, it becomes a mechanism for producing a lot of black fatigue, because if white people are that fragile. And, and I find the concept both useful and like sometimes problematic kind of bundled yeah. into one. Like it's true white people are fragile and isn't that convenient. You, you almost find this like active work to maintain the fragility because what it means is the emotional labor of dealing with our social political world and all the problems and issues and everything that comes up around it, all of that gets dumped on people of color. Right. It's it's, you know, and there's a lot of emotional labor. I'm really interested in talk about the fatigue that comes from the emotional labor of making sure that white people and gender gets interesting here too. making sure white women feel safe and comfortable and not threatened because the minute they start feeling too uncomfortable and threatened white women, you know, their fragility and that need, I think of the fragility is, is sort of a way of maintaining the supposed innocence. And the, you know, and so that cannot be threatened. And if it is, you see that harsh hand behind there, just uh, literally or metaphorically slapping down whoever it was that made that white person feel uncomfortable. So a lot of uh, uh, not just black men, but but black people in general, but but 
and people of color in general, but I think a lot of this work has to be, gets done by black people mm -hmm. or it's demanded in some unspoken way that you tiptoe around this and that, or you smile in a certain way, or you make sure that that white woman in the elevator does not start to get too uncomfortable. Um, and the anxiety that that creates then for say that black person on the elevator is what often isn't looked at. We talk about the white woman and the, why does she feel mm -hmm. so threatened and what's going on there? But what, what just went on physiologically, emotionally, health-wise for that black person who had to do all that emotional interpersonal labor out of uh, you know what you, you could they could refuse to do the labor and that might help reduce some of the fatigue but there are lots of dangers that, that can come with that too and, and it's just for existing right it's just for being it's, it's not for doing anything except being right I'm, I'm in this elevator so i'm, I'm here I'm, I'm i am just being and i'm thinking about all of these um the anxiety that this this might be causing this this white person who's also there so I'm thinking too, um, Shannon, that from, as I've been thinking about this, I really think that it, it's really, that's really a power thing here because uh, white women, and I don't want to generalize too much, but I've said white women use the fragility as power. Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a sociologist in Canada who has this great phrase about uh, tears, fears, and careers. And it, but it's looking at, you know, the kinds of... Um, I'm not saying every white woman cries, but this, this fear. And then if it gets too uncomfortable, often crying that this mm -hmm. is, you know, and then all of a sudden the attention's on the white woman who's somehow been hurt or harmed because the discussion got too angry. Maybe there was an angry black person or something. And, um, and so it really does become a power move to deflect away from what was supposed to be the issue at hand, which was dealing with racial injustice. Now it turns into uh, a focus about, again, some, somehow the white person was the one being harmed in all this. Exactly. And now we have to work to protect that person right. again. Yeah. And, 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 I, and it's power. And, it, and it's not often on a conscious level. Like, I don't think white people often, maybe sometimes some do, but it's, it's not that they have to sit around and consciously go, how can I manipulate this situation so that I keep the power, et cetera, et cetera. All of this, I think, can happen in a very unconscious way in and through um, some of this emotional, interpersonal um, sorts of dynamics that we've been talking about. Yeah, well, so it's how you've been socialized in a way, right? How white women and, 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 and you know, and white people in general, how they've been socialized, I think, and I used the term entitlement um, before, but let's, you know, the, the, um, the meme, the Karen meme, right? Mm -hmm. so the, the Karen meme it is really, um, that is about power too, and that's about, you know, why am I entitled to ask a couple who, or make building a deck on the back of their home. Why am I entitled to ask them if they have a permit to build that deck? I mean, what, I would never think of asking anybody who's building a deck or doing anything if they if they have the right to do that. They're in their they're in their yard, right? The little kid who was selling you know bottles of water, um, you know like you know, like the lemonade stand, but it was the water stand. You know, do do you have a permit? You know, um, for this, should you be barbecuing here? So the, all of those things to me. That's not fragility. That's no, that's not fragility. I think the Karen <laughs> phenomenon is not fragility at all. It is aggressive and it's, it's got a lot of uh, anger in the guise of these. Um, I have to think about all, if all the examples fit this, but a lot of them fit very explicitly trying to use the law. I mean, sometimes it might be a community regulation, but right, some exactly. kind of community regulation or law, very aggressively using that mm -hmm. in targeted ways to dampen, hinder, harass people right. of color. Yeah. 
It's yeah. just pure out aggression. Right. Yeah, it's some kind of rule, right? And and even and but even when I'm breaking the rule, like the Central Park situation with the um, uh, Amy Cooper and and you know Christian Cooper, they're not related, but Christian Cooper was the bird watcher. Right. Cooper uh, was um, had her dog unleashed, which was um, not which was against the ordinance because the dogs can scare the birds. Um, and uh, you know, so and she, you know, totally went off in terms of being. Know, feel, feeling that feeling that she was threatened and so 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 that's the entitlement that i see you know just even mm -hmm. i can break the rules right and if i if i want to break the rules um uh, i'm entitled you know i'm entitled to do that i used to see that so i would go i would i used to fly well before the pandemic i flew a lot mm -hmm. and i would notice this happened several times where a white person would come and or would be in my seat or come and sit next to me and then have to move and it was like when it, they would be in my seat and I say, oh, I think that's my seat. Oh, yeah, probably is just, you know, there's one, mine's behind you, just, just take that one. And I'm like, mm. Mm, no, that's the one I was assigned. And, and then, so I'm in the wrong because I want to have my seat. Mm -hmm. That's what I, I guess that's what I'm getting at in terms of the, the sort of the, the entitlement I see more so than the, the fragility. But anyway, um, that was just something that I've been, been thinking about so we can move on. What are your thoughts about the current racial climate? Um, that, that we're finding ourselves in today? I mean, I think of a couple of, of things in connection with that. Um, I, I mean, I think some of the racism and white supremacy is really naked and explicit in ways that um, in some ways, but not always, is different than the past. I think um, a lot of good white people feel sort of shocked at how naked it is. But, and, and so that's, and, and maybe are even, becoming aware of how much um, anti-black and other forms of racism are out there. And so, you know, it's okay, that, that's good. Um, you sort of question why did it take it getting that naked before white people noticed it, but okay, let's say that. One of the things I worry about though, is that, that, that surprise or that being upset, thinking about the George Floyd murder and other things. I'm, um, it is way too early for, um, as I've heard some people ask or wonder, are, are things really changing now because white people really get it and they're out there protesting now, really going to white people protest in the 50s, at least some. And it's way too early to think, though, that there's been a real change in habits of whiteness. Where some, I, and I hate to sound too cynical, but uh, it's way too early for, for us to know, as some people have wondered, if this is going to have some staying power. Um, I'm not convinced that it will or that it does. Um, and I also worry that some of the upset about the real explicit racism that I think is floating around in US society and, and some different political and other venues right now, um, I worry that what white people want, they won't say it this way explicitly, what they want is for it to go back the way it was before, which in my ears is, it's still there. It's just dialed down a few notches so it's not quite as um, overt or explicit because that makes us white people feel uncomfortable. We're back to the, we're back to the white fragility, but as a um, power play, as a kind of cover for a desire to keep um, racial injustice in place, to, for white people to have priority, for them to have the entitlement, for the rules to apply to them only when they want to, but when they don't, you know, all the things we've been talking about. So I, I really worry that 
I, 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 you know, it's just going to take a lot more and a lot longer to, to know if there's any kind of more substantial change going on versus um, just the kind of white plea that um, it, for the, and not all white people are upset about currently what's going on with more explicit racism and more explicit white supremacy, but the ones who are just want it to be, could we go back to where it was done a little more politely and not quite as rudely? And that's it. Yeah, because it's hard work, right? I mean, we're talking about dismantling, you know, systems that are you know, centuries old. And in order to do it, you have to stay with it. I've been doing this work now for 36 years. And so it's not the first time I've been around. <laughs> Here we go again. Um, but it's just too hard. And, that, you know, change happens when the pain of staying where you are is greater than the pain of, you know, do doing something else. And the pain for white people didn't get greater until we started to see the, you know, the protests and whatnot. And so that's typically, you know, what it takes for any social movement, right? There's always, you know, mm -hmm. if it's about race, if it's about labor, it's about, you know, women's rights, whatever, there's always, there's mm -hmm. always something that um, uh, is, um, is that related to violence that, that causes people to take notice and to, and to change. And so I, I agree with you because I'm already seeing in our, in my practice, already seeing some pushback, already seeing, you know, those, that first uh, three weeks in June, we were so busy. I mean, we just couldn't keep up with the demand for, you know, can you, can you do a town hall for us? Can you talk about the history of racism? We, we want to, you know, can you talk to our black employees and do some healing sessions? Oh my goodness, blah, blah, blah. And it ha everything had to be done, you know, that sense of urgency, right? Everything had to be done mm -hmm. this week. We, can't, we cannot wait, it has to be done. And so now we're already seeing that, you know, it's not as urgent anymore and it's not as, you know, and people have kind of gotten, gone back to, 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 to normal. Mm -hmm. My colleague said, that she, somebody said that she's in, the, in the, a diversity role in an organization said, didn't we talk about that last month? Are we still talking about that? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So it's just this kind of short, short attention span that we have and we're on, you know, we're on to the next. Um, I, I think that what, what's going on with, you know, with, with the way um, Trump is di dividing. I really believe he is dividing mm -hmm. the country and, you know, banning anti-racism training in the government. Uh, and and you know, my perspective is, is that with people who are uh, against it don't really understand what it is. They take a sound bite and they say, oh, we're telling, we're, we're, we're telling all white people that they're racist. Well, I think what we're, what I'm saying, what we're saying is that we live in a racialized world mm -hmm. <laughs> such. We are all, uh, I don't use the word victims, but I guess victims of that race, that racialized world. And it's, it's hoping to help have people take collective accountability for that. Mm -hmm. That's the message. And I know my colleagues are in, in this work, but when you take it out of context and you say all, you know, all white people are racist, and what does that do? And how do you, how do we fix that um, narrative uh, to be able to make it more like we're re we really are trying to get to unity. We really are trying to get to equity. But in order to do that, you know, like you're trying to use the term naked, we've got to kind of take, take, take all the clothes off and, you know, really start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't like prove this in any kind of way, but um, when you match when you match sort of the behaviors, the behaviors and the words of white people don't match. Mm. And I look at the behaviors. White people don't want racial equity. 
And I'm not saying that about, that's not targeted at any particular white person. I'm right. speaking generally. Of course, there's all the things that people will jump on when they hear me say that. But if you look at the, stop looking at the words, because the words make white people look nice, justice and equity. And of course, we want fairness and we're a nation that provides, kind of set the words aside and look at the behavior. Why are you still working on the very same thing 36 years later? It's because white people don't want it to change. Now that, you know, that's not necessarily at a conscious level, but I just don't think the conscious level is the fuel motivating a lot of this. And um, until white people really feel that they have skin in the game, they're going to, they're just going to keep digging in and they don't want it to change. I mean, the, so, so banning the anti-racism trainings um, is shocking, but it sort of just makes explicit and says out loud in a way, Mm-hmm. What I think was kind of there for a while. I think in one of um, one of the um, descriptions or sort of um, when I think about your book, Black Fatigue, one of the um, uh, comments or descriptions around it is about how it's paradoxical that there's been all this attention focused for the last 50 years or so on social justice and diversity and inclusion, but there really hasn't been that much progress made. And all of a sudden the paradox disappears and we go, cause, yeah, because white people don't really want that. Right. They ended Jim Crow because of the pain. Mm-hmm. But they didn't, most of them, us, didn't think, we, I mean, I was only born then, so, but, you know, <laughs> they didn't, but they didn't think we, I have to put myself in this group, we didn't, um, we didn't really think there was skin in the game. It was just, how do we get this pain to go away? And you can see, I think the last 50 years post Jim Crow, um, as finding new ways for the privileging and prioritizing of white people to rearrange themselves in a post-Jim Crow wars, uh, world so they can carry on just in new and different ways. Just the behaviors don't line up. If the people in power wanted some of these things to change, they'd help put some resources, time and energy behind changing it. And we white people just don't do that. Right. Yeah. And that tells yeah. you what we really believe. Right, and I've seen that in terms of um, you know resources they will hire and put in place the chief diversity officers and actually pay them a lot of money, a lot of money. And I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it right out loud. In essence, they're buying the silence. They're buying buying them to maintain the status quo because if you're paid half a million dollars a year or whatever you know that salary is, um, and you can now have some things that you probably couldn't have had before, right? So you, 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 you become part of the system of, of maintaining, um, maintaining the status quo. Uh, so yes, I, I, I agree that um, I don't think. And, and so therefore, here we are, black fatigue. So generations. So of- no wonder black people are fatigued. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't surprise anyone. It shouldn't surprise anyone, right? Uh, yeah, and so, you know, in, when talking with the younger generation, I, I almost feel like guilty that yeah, I've devoted my life's work to this, and my generation didn't really, you know, didn't really get there. I mean, we, we got there in a way, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I was, you know, just a child then, but I, I came into the work actually in the 70s, um, and so we have seen some, you know, we have seen some, you know, some progress. I mean, you can't explicitly discriminate against anybody again. You, it, you can't say I'm not hiring you uh, because you're Black, right. and say I'm not hiring you because you have a Black-sounding name, um, and, but that's unconscious, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, yes. So, so I think that, um, you know, we are really, we're, we're really stuck. And, and I know that you have done some work um, around this um, intergenerational um, fatigue that leads to um, 
health issues. So let's talk about that um, a little bit, because I do reference your work in um, ep epigenetics. Is that the, I learned, yes. <laughs> I learned that as I was researching the book. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, about the um, intergenerational impact of black fatigue. Yeah, I mean, and you know, with the with the kind of a warning to the audience, how um, much of a downer this topic can be, because uh, it, um, I'm real I'm real careful to not talk about the permanence. You know, Derek Bell Bell will talk about the permanence of racism in the United States, and I don't want to use that term, but there's a real durability, and it's durable because of uh, um, some very deep ways the impact of racism gets into physiology the physiology of black bodies and and on the flip side the <laughs> we can talk more about the physiology of white bodies here too but if we're talking mm -hmm. about black fatigue um yeah one thing that's so interesting is to realize like you know it, it's it's not just not getting a good night's sleep like being tired in that sense there's a real weathering um of, of black bodies and other people of color but let's stick with black bodies for now a real weathering that takes place because of the impact uh, of microaggressions and even more macro um, aggressive um, stressors that Im impact black lives. And so some of the, and, and they are transgenerational, which I, I think is both fascinating, but also the, uh, gosh, even if we could eliminate magically right now, snap our fingers and make all racism and white supremacy just disappear. Like all the, not just the laws, but the way people heard black names and interacted with each other. If we could just snap our fingers and all went away, the effects of ongoing white supremacy and racism for the generations before us would still be there and they would still be showing up in black health in the negative effects on black health. Um, so some of that has to do with uh, I mean, we can get in the weeds here on some of the physiology about how, you know, we can take the chronological age of, of two women, one black, one white, let's say they're 50 years old. So chronologically, they might be both 50 years old, but physiologically on average, that, that black woman is eight years older than the white woman. If you look at the length, the ends of the chromosomes that are called Sometimes I hear telomeres or telomeres. Yeah, and they, they shorten as we age. And so there's this process of aging that all human beings go on, go through. But there's, oh gosh, we sometimes think what normal aging is, we tend to refer to the white body and call that normal. That's a whole nother issue that we should talk about. But um, aging as a physiological process happens in different ways depending on the stressors of our environment. And if there's the ongoing racial racist stress, it's aging that body differently, and it can be passed on. Um, sometimes this is, happens through the, what they call the uterine environment, where the stress that um, a black woman who's pregnant, the, the stress hormones that are released there can actually, they can actually um, set the markers on the gene in a way that before that baby is born, it will now be more uh, susceptible to stress and the various health effects that go along with that, that can lead into high blood pressure, hypertension. These are precursors to other problems having to do with diabetes and heart disease, et cetera. So that little baby can be born with, um, when we talk about epigenetic markers, if, if everyone wants to, the markers that are on the gene. Yeah, go there, control go, go there, give us yeah, something. Yeah, okay. Science. So there's yeah. no such, there's no such thing as a naked gene. Um, all our genes have markers on them. And, and one of the most, um, and those markers 
control whether and to what degree the gene is expressed. And so the markers, um, uh, methylation is one of the key markers that tends to be talked about. You can think of them as like knobs that turn up or turn down a gene. Now, so depending on what genes, and of course, you know, there's never like just single genes working by themselves, but okay, we've got our genes, but there's no such thing as this executive gene that's like controlling everything, environment on the side. There are all kinds of ways that our environment, our environments are the main ways that the, these chemical markers or chemicals that bond on the outside of the gene control the expression of the gene. And the gene never exists without those markers. So the environment is a, is a co-partner in a very equal way in what's happening to us genetically. So um, stress in different ways can turn these knobs up and down in a ways that can lead to, I mean, when they research all this stuff in mice, they start looking at what color is the coat of the mouse and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. Start looking at humans, it, it controls a lot of these. So um, some of the ways that the markers on the genes, this is when we're, when we're talking about epigenetics instead of just mm -hmm. genetics, we're talking about those markers and the expressions of the genes. So one of the indirect ways that, um, that the stress of say a mother can be actually physiologically shape and change the body of that baby is through the stress that the mother's dealing with. It affects the markers in the fetus. The fetus is born with those markers set in a way that will make it mm -hmm. for the rest of its life. Even though that little fetus baby who was a fetus itself has taken one breath of air and never experienced any racism in the world. The effects of that mother, the racism on the mother have now uh, methylated in certain ways that that baby is susceptible to all sorts of diseases that it wouldn't have been otherwise. Wow. Now, and so that's, you know, that's, um, that's one way in which if we just eliminate it all right now, there, those, that, those effects are still going to be there physiologically. And then there are more direct ways that um, and of course we all have stress uh, and, and these but 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 when we're looking at these really salient significant patterns of stress that show up in our society racism is one of the key ones and there's um a lot the the preterm birth rates for african-american women in the united states are significantly higher than those of white women and it's not just that they go into labor early and have, and so all the health effects of a prematurely born baby. So we're talking somewhere like six weeks early. Um, in addition to those effects, uh, there are the epigenetic effects that I just mentioned. But it also turns out there's some more direct ways that these, um, that there can be epigenetic effects and these start to get, I won't go into all the details, but these start to get even more striking in terms of um, it not just being the so-called uterine environment of that fetus that's affecting the newborn baby and whether, whether its epigenetic structure has been set in such a way that it's prone to disease. It, there does seem to be evidence for, um, so usually our epigenetic markers, uh, they, they're sort of wiped clean. You start with a clean slate, so to speak. When that egg and the sperm come together, there is this clean slate of the epigenetic the markers starting fresh. And that's why they always thought that epigenetics is not something that can be passed down. This kind of marking that we're seeing can't be passed down directly in the way that genes are passed down directly from parent to child. The epigenetic markers have to be reestablished within each generation so that there's a fresh start, supposedly. Okay, so already weathering, even though they're marked clean, so to speak, those epigenetic markers, when the little zygote is there, as that zygote's turning into a fetus, 
its markers are getting adjusted by the mother's stress. So that is a clean slate and yet uh, that environment changing the epigenetic markers. But there's evidence now of what gets called um, genomic imprinting. So that even, okay, so zygote kind of gets, you know, we get the clean wash there with the egg and sperm coming together, but that there's an imprinting that happens in the sperm and the egg where it looks like the uh, epigenetic, the markers are being shifted and changed. And so there's evidence, for example, and one of the ways you can really track this is um, looking down a paternal line instead of a maternal line. Because anytime you're looking maternally, you can say, well, wasn't that just what happened in the, in the womb, in the uterus? And so yes, it's being handed down. It's still transgenerational, but it's, it's not really directly um, handed down physiologically. But there's evidence in uh, examples of some of these Swedish famines that happened uh, back in World War II and earlier, the Swedes evidently kept these really detailed crop records and they know exactly when various famines happened, how many calories people got. And you can see on a paternal line, when a grandfather went through a famine, two generations later, you can see the health effect on the grandson who had never himself experienced famine and it went through the paternal line. This is not because in the uterus, let's say the mom didn't have enough food. It wasn't right. that. So there's a lot of evidence and there's some evidence around um, smokers too. And some of that affecting some epigenetic markers going down the paternal line and lasting four generations. So something back there that happened two to four generations ago with a famine on the dad's line is affecting the health of that grandson in terms of some of the markers and things that they can see. So they're, there now true true epigenetic um, transmission in a very direct way we know happens with plants it's less common in mammals because mammals are just so much more complicated mm -hmm. but there are enough of these sort of cases to begin to ask questions about it just might not be so simple as only the genes get passed down none of this other stuff does its environment and its secondary there really seems to be a co-constitution physiologically there why does all that matter in the context of racism? Again, it matters because stress, stress of any form, but stress is one of these huge uh, environmental factors that turns up and down these markers on our genes. And so if you have patterns of real system, systematic stress directed at a race of people, people get marked as African-American, mm -hmm. you're literally constructing them physiologically in ways through those um, targeted racialized stressors that there will be these physiological effects for generations. And you, in effect, like race isn't biological in the sense that we come with little black and white genes or anything else, but we actually start creating racialized differences in health in and through racist practice. So it's not race and then racism, it's racism starts to create racial differences that then we have to grapple with and, and, uh, and reckon with, because they don't just go away quickly. Yeah, that, that was so amazing. Thank you for sharing that because you shared it in a way that I think the audience will be able to understand, you know, in, in lay terms, I read your paper on epigenetics and it was, it got a bit, uh, a bit dense for me in terms of just, you know, being able to understand what you really explained it well. And so, so um, does that also then, explain some of why you know, we see these studies about um, college educated middle class black women who 
uh, are still, I think it's, I think the statistic, I don't remember quite, but I think it's twice as likely yes. to yes. have premature babies, but also their own health. Are they taught at some number as likely to, to die in childbirth, even? even? Not as it may be. I'm not as familiar with the rates of maternal death, but mm -hmm. definitely it's twice as high to have preterm birth and then all the mm -hmm. complications for the new baby that come from that. And then that baby will, so then you also start to see, and this begins to answer some of those questions. Why do you begin to see, not in every family, but why do you begin to see a pattern of preterm births of women in African-American families? Mm -hmm. And it might, it, now one answer could be environment in a very macro sense of, mm -hmm. but, but, but your point's right there, but wait a minute, it's not just socioeconomic. Right. What if there is all the prenatal care? What if there's plenty of income for good food and all mm -hmm. the vitamins and whatever, and you still see in these families many times, grandmother, mother, and then that daughter, preterm birth rates mm -hmm. uh, being very, very high and all, the, and all the dangers that go along with that. And there's, there's this one doctor <laughs> who said at one point, he's like, there's just something about being a black female in the United States that's bad for their reproductive health. And we just can't figure out what it is, you know, what's going on. And then for a little while, they were even looking for a preterm birth gene and wondering wow. if Africa, and then you're just like, how far do we go to avoid right. looking at the obvious that maybe right. it has something to do with racism? So yeah. Um, yeah. there's more attention being paid to that now, but there literally was for a while an, an attempt to look for, I think it was when we were like mapping the whole human genome and this mm -hmm. fantasy about 15 years ago, if we could find the gene for everything, they start looking for the preterm birth gene to see if African-American women have it. Wow. There's no such, there's no such thing. Everyone should yeah. know that. There's no such so, thing. So just like in, in other aspects of society um, where we think that the, um, the leveler, the great leveler is uh, education, um, which will then lead to, you know, socioeconomic, um, uh, the different socioeconomic level and status. We, we find that um, in, in what you've just been talking about in terms of health outcomes, you know, that's not the case. Um, we find um, that in other um, instances, I read something that said that um, a black person who was raised um, middle class um, has as high a likelihood of in adulthood being in poverty as a poor white person who, you know, in terms of generation. So, so, so when we think that the, uh, the impact of racism is going to, to lessen from generation to generation, get get better from generation. That's not the case in many, not just in health, but in socioeconomics, you know, in, in all of the different aspects that we might look at it, you know. So socioeconomics obviously has to do with housing and all those kinds of things. As you look at that, I mean, all of the indicators that you would say education should, mm -hmm. education doesn't seem to fix it, right? It's, it's true. It does not. It does not. Um, it, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it, it's still a good thing that can help in some ways, but I mean, we know actually racial disparities in wealth have gone up since the end of Jim Crow. Right. They haven't gone down. Right. And it's actually the same thing's true for disparities in health. And so you start, and, and so, um, right. I mean, all these studies uh, are very careful when they're looking at race, they control for what they call SES, so, so, socioeconomic status. Right. So they're looking at, Obviously, economics, but just kind of uh, level of education, job jobs that people have, and so there, that that SES does play a factor, but it turns mm -hmm. out it, it cannot, it does not collapse into race. Mm 
it's not the case that if we only looked at socioeconomic factors, that would take care of everything. Right. There is a separate factor having to do with race that when you control in the study for everything else, it's still there. It's still there. It's still there, right? And that <laughs> is black fatigue. Yeah. It's, it's just um, generations of knowing that you can get all the education, you can do all of the right things, you can say all of the right things, and all of those, everything that is supposed to be, quote, what the dominant group would say, this is what you're supposed to do, and there's still disproportionality as it relates to outcomes, as it relates to race. And, yeah. and we're tired, and, and, and there's, there's, and I, you know, I talk, I call it the, I call it intergenerational fatigue. I mean, we're, you know, we're fatigued, um, and we probably don't, we don't know it oftentimes. We just think that this is just the way life is. It's just the way, um, you, you just sort of know that you have to um, manage this way. And I wrote the book because even when it, the publisher initially with the book concept, so who is the book for? Black people, right? I'm like, no, because we're the white people. <laughs> because as black people, we know we're fatigued. Mm -hmm. <laughs> However, I think it's, it's for both because for, as black people, we don't often correlate our symptoms with mm -hmm. living with racism because that's been normalized for us. Mm -hmm. It's just what we, it's just how we, you know, how we operate. You know, so, you know, um, you know, my son, Joe, who's a associate professor at Duke University um, in the religion department. Uh, and I, you know, I worry about him all the time uh, because he's a tall black man and, and he's the most compassionate, caring, sort of laid back kind of person that I would ever, that you could ever know. And I'm biased as a mom, but his friends say that and his professors say that too. But I know him. I can vouch for what you, you just said. You can vouch for him? Okay, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. However, um, he could be, he, he could be targeted and mm -hmm. um, because of, of who he is and, uh, and what he looks like. And I write about it in the book from the time he was, you know, when he was 12 years old, he was in the backseat of a police car and I came home from work and they said, the suspect has been apprehended. Well, the suspect has been apprehended, what are you talking about? And apparently he had gotten into a fight with a, a kid who had been bullying him, a white kid who had been bullying him for weeks. Um, Joe was never a fighter. He was never that, that you know. And he said, I finally just punched him because he kept, he kept egging me on. He kept asking me to do it. And so rather than the parent coming to the parents and saying, hey, I think our kids got into, into something here, um, the father called the police. <laughs> that, that was his first thing to do, call the police. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Joe is in the back of a police car and he's saying, the suspect has been, I, I will never, as a mother, you would never be the suspect. No, and, yeah. And, and Joe and I had this conversation just recently about that incident and he said, the police told him, they said, you know, we didn't, we didn't handcuff you this time. He said, but if it happens again, we're going to take you in. He's 12 years old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so, and this was in a suburb, suburb of, uh, you know, Rochester, New York, where, um, you know, where, where we, where he grew up. I mean, that example points to how, uh, like, like one of the roots of this United States, it does not matter how much education or family stability or money or whatever else uh, that black person has they're still criminalized. They're still seen as an implicit criminal and it takes one little misstep or maybe not even that, maybe just a white woman looking the wrong way right. and, and you can get criminalized like that. And so some of it could take the form of, we've had a description of a tall black man in the area who's, you know, boom, all the tall black men can all, all of a sudden, you know, the police right. will be on. But, but yeah, that example, 
that um, it doesn't change um, the way blackness in general, but maybe this is true for black girls and women too, but okay, I think of black boys and women, black boys and men are criminalized and the effects of that play out. And then, but it, it's a form of terror because that it doesn't happen, you know, the way terrorism works, it doesn't have to happen to every black 12 year old or every black family, but everyone knows it could happen. Right. And it happens enough to know it, at any moment. So there's the on edge. There's the chronic stressor that fatigues. You know, stress exactly. isn't always bad if you have this moment of doing the ropes course and there's the stress mm -hmm. of doing it and then your body relaxes. And these chronic stressors, it's like an engine that revs, mm -hmm. maybe low to medium, not, but it revs every day, every day, all day. Yeah. And that weathers, mm -hmm. that fatigues. Right. Yeah. And it's not just... Uh, I mean, I just, you know, it's not, not, not that you've ever said this, but I, I just want your audience to know that that fatigue, it's not just like feeling tired, like you need a nap. The physiological body is getting ground down. And so that's the basis for everything, emotional, spiritual. So I don't, I don't mean that to sound, um, there's always a danger of that sounding like black people are just being like crushed to dust from all of this. And that's not true, but um, Right. No, it, it's they're it, real effects. Yeah, because we we we've learned to not only survive but thrive, and and a lot of times it's through our faith. A lot of times mm -hmm. it's through, you know that the black church is is very as you know very important um, in black people's lives. And as sometimes as I you know experience worship and and I see the um, passion and the expression and the outlet of just being being able to just be in a place where. You can just be yourself and just let it all out, you know, let it all out. And so you will see people dancing and you will, you know, see people, you know, doing the holy dance and all of those kinds of things. And, you know, as I, you know, grew up in that kind of a, a, an environment and still in that environment, it's just something, it's the release. It's mm -hmm. the release. And I talk about it in the book from the perspective that, you know, studies of show, I love, I'm a data person at, at heart because I'm qualitative and quantitative research is my background. And you see the studies that, that say that, you know, um, black people are, are much more likely to say that they're religious and they're spiritual than white people. Not that I'm not putting a judgment on that, but I'm just saying mm -hmm. that that's a place that we um, absolutely turn to be able to, um, to address it and, and to find what we call, you know, black joy. So there's a lot of positive mm -hmm you know, in black communities um, to, um, to, to write our own narrative and to not write a deficit narrative and to mm -hmm. not a narrative that um, is about, you know, black fatigue. So I'm, I know I'm going to get criticized for saying, you know, you know, why, why are you writing about something that's so, you know, negative, you know, we need to, we need to lift up, right? And, and, and the book does, you know, it, it does lift up. But, but I think the phenomenon of being, you know, fatigued and this is passed down from generation to generation because of unmitigated um, racism. And as you have um, highlighted today, that you don't really think white people want to um, get, get rid of um, the, the system, if you will, because the system works. I used to say that a lot about um, um, power and privilege uh, kind of uh, training. You know, I was never really a big fan of power and privilege training because I was going to tell white people they have power and privilege. Well, okay, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Right. I think I want to keep that. <laughs> it's a good thing. Uh, so, you know, it, it never, never struck me that, um, and I think it, I, I, and I'm being, I know that I'm being extreme here. Obviously the message 
for some white people, you know, resonates. But I think in general, you know, when you tell people that they have power and, and what, what do you want me to do with that power, right? How, you know, how do, I, how do I give you some or transfer some to you? We're talking about some of those things now, but, but still from a systemic way, it just, as you say, it just doesn't happen. So I just want to end this um, with giving you the, the, sort of the last um, words. Uh, from your perspective, what, what are some of the solutions to black fatigue? We've already said really hard, you know, the system <laughs> not, hasn't been cracked, but what are some solutions? Um, yeah, I think some of it is sort of, sort of thinking both short-term and long-term, like all at the same time, because mm -hmm. the long-term solution has got to involve continuing to try and chip away at racial injustice. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to go away in our, you're in my lifetime, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be, st the struggle matters and there can be change. But, but that, that can't be the only answer. There have to be communities of coping. And I mean coping in a way that brings the joy that you're talking about. And so I think communities of color have to find, you know, that can be the church, but it can be other ways too. Ways of, of uh, like this is going to sound weird. I think some, sometimes the, one of the best things white people can do is leave people of color alone. <laughs> and by now there's a danger in that because then like we made the mess, we need to help fix it. And that means right. resources to help. Right. But, but sometimes in that good white person way of wanting, so, you know, let's integrate everything. Let's have it be, I'm real critical of what I call white people's ontological expansiveness, which is just <laughs> a fancy word of saying, we feel like it's entitlement. We feel like we have the right to be in any space we want to be in. So if we want to come to that black church because we think it'd be fun to dance while we're in, I ought to be able to just walk in. And the way we uh, can destroy a space of healing because it didn't have white people in it, you know, doesn't get paid attention to. So I think there is a ton uh, communities of color, black communities, I think, um, See, talk about taking things out of context. This can sound very segregationist. And I think some of those segregated moments are really important depending on who's choosing them and who, what they're being used for. White people need to respect that they're just spaces they don't belong in because we're toxic when we come into them. It does not matter how good my intentions are. If I show up as a white person in that space, it changes it. Now, maybe, maybe there's some moments where I'm invited in and that might be okay. And maybe sometimes they're just shouldn't be, and but that sense of entitlement that, so those spaces, and so one of the things, I mean, I know black people already know about the communities in those power. One thing white people can do, well, first of all, is read your book so we know how damaging and toxic <laughs> we can be. I mean, um, that just, I'm not saying all bad people are evil, all white people are evil or anything, but um, that was an interesting slip right there, but, um, <laughs> our presence can destroy communities of coping for people of color. And so out of respect, I can stay out of those. Now that can be a, that can be a, that can be a disrespect too. You know, what, and I'm not arguing for that. So there's real attention to how can there be pushing to get resources distributed in different ways? Racial, just, racial justice is not coming tomorrow. Can I try and help with my power shift some resources so those communities have them to cope? And, and can white people work in their own communities and among themselves talking mm -hmm. about these problems? 
so that we're not over there expecting people of color to do all that emotional work for us. That takes some of the load off of the fatigue a little. Yeah. Take yeah. some of that emotional work over to ourselves and not ask you to do it. That help mm -hmm. a little. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, yes. And you said this is going to sound weird, but it didn't sound weird at all. Um, and I think it's a, it's, it's a great way to end. It's complex. And I think it's a little, I think it's some of both, it's some of the both and kind of thing that, that, that mm -hmm. we get, that we kind of don't do that that well, because when, like when you say, when you hear things like, I don't want to sound like a segregationist. However, we need our, we need some spaces. Yes. We, yeah. But if you say that, then somebody's going to interpret that as meaning that Dr. Shannon Sullivan said, is it, is it she's getting out the white hood, you know, right. I've had people, <laughs> okay, take it out of context. Fine. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I, and I think that's, that's the conversations that we really don't have to be able to hold space for. It can be a both and it's not an either or it's a both right. and in the right kind of context in order to get the work done. Well, listen, I want to thank you so, so very much for taking the time. This has really, really been amazing. I think it adds a lot to some of the concepts that um, I say, I talk about in, in the book. And your book, um, you have a couple of books out. I know you have the Good White People. What's the, what's the you have another one that is? Um, I, I have the Physiology of Sexist and Racist Oppression that has that medical physiological data in it. And then right. I have... Um, uh, um, a smaller little book called White Privilege. In some ways, I think of it as a, a nice compliment to Black fatigue, because mm -hmm. that white privilege over here is really fatiguing to Black people. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yeah. um, that, that one was out last year, the White, the white Privilege book. Yeah, and um, those um, works of Dr. Um, Shannon Sullivan can be found um, on, uh, on Amazon, as can um, my books, which are you know, behind me. Uh, but, the, but the one we've been talking about most today is um, Black Fatigue. And people ask me, well, how do Black Fatigue and Inclusive Conversations, which came out in July, um, there's inclusive conversations, how do those uh, work, work together? If, we're, if we are ever able to have these inclusive conversations, I think that that can lessen Black Fatigue. Mm -hmm. so, so much for listening. Thank you, um, Dr. Sullivan, for taking the time and um, all the best uh, this semester, which is going to be like no other, right, at UNC? Like no other. Well, thank you, and I'm excited. I'm excited for when the Black Fatigue book is out. It'll be thank you, thank you so much. All right.